Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Welcome to Naked Reflections, brought to you from the Wolf Institute. I'm Ed Kessler, and each week I'll be taking an in-depth look at the stories reported by our friends over at The Naked Scientists. What does the latest scientific stuff mean for the rest of us? Stay with us and find out. Let me take you back to the space race between the USSR and the United States of America in the last century. Here's Rebecca Charbonneau of the Whipple Library in Cambridge speaking on The Naked Scientist about what became known as the space race. So Sputnik was launched in October of 1957. And after Sputnik was launched, this was really alarming. And so then it was then an imperative to be able to compete with the Soviet Union on this level. In the new year, NASA was founded. So actually, NASA was not very successful against the Soviet Union in the early days of the space race. In fact, the Soviet Union was able to accomplish a large number of objectives that NASA was behind on. There's a really long list of firsts, and it wasn't until the mid-60s where the Soviet Union really started lagging behind. And we all know how the space race ended. Both superpowers had form when it came to using science to further national prestige. Back in the Stalin era, Trofim Lyshenko developed a campaign against the science of genetics and U.S. research in particular, which pleased the great leader, not because of any intrinsic scientific merit, but because he simply condemned scientific developments in the West. Soviet scientists who refused to accept his views were dismissed from their posts. Fast forward to the COVID era, and we find President Putin bragging about a Russia first vaccine a vaccine that it seems has yet to be trialled properly, and President Trump responding with some truculent bluster about how it's going away. It will go away. Things go away. Absolutely. No question in my mind. Sooner rather than later. Nationalism is our subject this week. And with me to discuss it are Chris Cooper Davis, PhD scholar here at the Wolf Institute, whose research focuses on nation building and sectarian identities in Iraq in the early 20th century, and Dr. Jeff Miley, lecturer in political sociology and fellow of Darwin College, Cambridge, who has done a lot of work on the ideas of nationalism and regional identity, especially in modern Spain. Well, welcome to you both. So I have to begin by asking, is competitive nationalism of this sort a danger or a spur 
to greater things. Jeff. I come from California and some of my first memories in school are these memories uh, of being like in second, third grade, maybe. This was in the early 80s. We would have these drills where we were told to get underneath our desks. And these were these drills in case there was a nuclear war. I think it's really important to, to remember the Cold War put uh, humanity at the very edge of a mutually assured destruction, let's say. And that, in fact, that mutually assured destruction, uh, many scholars in international relations think is what kind of stopped it from happening. But nonetheless, we were very close to a tragic uh, denouement to this uh, conflict. Uh, whether or not the conflict between capitalism and uh, state communism is best conceived through the rubric of a nationalist conflict, it certainly had a nationalist dimension to it. And we definitely see in the United States today, in some respects, and also in, in Putin's Russia, in, in other respects, a consequence of generations of nationalist ideology in the schools, in the educational systems, in the military apparatuses, that it remains uh, one of the major threats to the future of existence on the planet. But did it spur greater things, Jeff? You've articulated very clearly the dangers it was also in the 20th century the phenomenon of the anti-colonial nationalisms. And those anti-colonial nationalisms definitely were among the most uh, important of ideological phenomena. And they led to a radical reconfiguration of political power relations in, in the world along the lines of the self-determination of people, so the end of empire. Uh, so in that respect, and if we go back to the 19th century in Europe as well, the nationalist ideologies were also linked to the demise of the dynastic formula of legitimation and, the, and, and very intimately related to the rise of democracy. So, so nationalism has both this very dangerous side to it, but also is uh, very difficult to distinguish from aspirations for self-determination and democracy, which are central to political ideals that we uphold. Chris, that seems a perfect uh, segue for you, because nationalism and anti-colonialism is very much up your street. Whether we can say that anti-colonial nationalism is a, necessarily a productive thing or a moral good, I think is certainly up for contention. It's certainly a model that has been adopted by all anti-colonial figures, perhaps problematically. In a sense, it's a cultural and political model that's adopted from the colonial power, which actually kind of underlies a little bit of a contradiction in post-colonial nationalist struggles, because while they're at the one hand opposed to Western domination, they're at the same time often using the same idioms, the same political models and the same political strategies to get what they want. And in a way, it's essentially a, a cultural victory for the colonial oppressor. That's somewhat ironic, of course. And, and how did that play out in Iraq? The Iraqi state emerged before anything like Iraqi nationalism or the Iraqi nation had even been thought of. From the very beginning, nationalism and the nation were contested categories in Iraq. And I think even today, we can see how that's the case. But that's not to say that Iraqi nationalism is necessarily weak. It's just to say that it's a field for pretty much ongoing conflict between different elements of Iraqi society, whether that's different religious groups, ethnic groups. Or, or just sort of different political ideologies such as Arabism, pan-Arab nationalism, or things like Iraqi nationalism, or, or nowadays we're seeing more assertive religious nationalisms there as well. It sounds like we need to define nationalism. Jeff, help us here. It's a tricky subject, the question of how to define the nation and nationalism. I think that the most influential definition of nationalism in scholarly quarters of the last generation uh, would be Benedict Anderson's definition of the nation as an imagined community. And uh, what he tries to do in that really important and influential, rightly influential book is to distinguish the type of imagined community that is the nation from other forms of communal imagining. Uh, and in particular, he uh, hones in on the idea that the nation form is imagined 
imagined as a sovereign political community, uh, which is also a limited political community. And so he, in particular, distinguishes this from the dynastic form of legitimation that preceded it. For Anderson's account, it actually originally emerges in the colonial settler regimes of, of the Americas, then it is taken up after the French Revolution in, in Europe as well, where it then evolves and is taken up around the world in the anti-colonial struggles. They, this is one of the major paradoxes, so to speak, of the anti-colonial struggles is that they very much inherit the state boundaries which are created by the imperialist powers. Sykes-Picot, I think, is a very important a moment for thinking about the so-called Middle East, but they also inherit the dominant formula of political legitimation, which is the nation form. And a lot of these anti-colonial nationalist leaders actually have direct experience studying in places like Oxbridge, for example. And so it is not a coincidence that they take up uh, this grammar of political life, so to speak, of modern political life. Now, both of you uh, focus on areas which have struggled with their own types of nationalism in Spain and and in Iraq. And they're complicated mosaics, aren't they? I mean, I guess in in terms of Spain, Jeff, there's the regional questions and whether there's such a thing as regional nationalism, I don't know. And for you, Chris, um, is it religious, ethnic, cultural, the the mosaic there in Iraq? What are the tensions in terms of that national identity? The Iraqi nation state was established after the First World War from three sort of distinct provinces of the Ottoman Empire that had a pretty kind of diverse fabric in terms of religion and ethnicity. You've got Kurds in the north, vast majority Shia in the south, Sunnis sort of in the middle and then to the west. You've got quite a sizable Christian population as well. And really the idea of the Iraqi state was to create, I think, what could be described as a pluralistic nation state in which all of these diverse elements would be incorporated and allowed to exist. But quite naturally, because of the colonial influence, because of the Ottoman legacy, that was a kind of an ideal that was never really achieved. And from day one, a particular elite that had influence in the Ottoman times and was close to the Sharifian officers that joined the Arab revolt in 1915, dominated the state and they had the patronage of the British. And there was always this tension between peripheral elements in Kurdish and Shia areas and the old notables that had been politically significant in those areas before the formation of the state, and then the centralizing state bureaucracy and state elite. I think, although it's very simplistic to say that this is what's caused all of the problems in Iraq, because it's not, this is what prevented the state from ever perhaps developing along the democratic lines that was hoped for. It allowed for the tyranny of uh, the post-1958 state and then the monopolization of power by a particular clique. So how to follow on that? I think it's a very interesting and complex discussion with respect to the case of Iraq. Obviously, as well, the whole question of the Kurds, which is something I've written on recently, and the space of the Kurds. The Kurds is a kind of international colony divided across Iraq, Syria, Turkey, Iran, and very much its division is, is again, a part of the legacy of this the end of the Ottoman Empire and the way in which the imperial powers were involved in carving up that Ottoman space. It's also obviously a case that post-invasion as well has led to so much instability uh, in the region. So there are sectarian conflicts, there's uh, ethno-linguistic kind of national diversity questions. And there's also the very interesting latent pan-national dimension having to do with a kind of Arab nationalism. And that's an interesting question, the extent to which what is an Arab national sentiment is translated into Iraqi, Syrian, what have you, variety of different nation state ideologies, but the extent to which the Arab pan-nationalist project failed, but also never fully 
completely failed. To this day, the Arab national identity remains, in some respect, the salient national identity. I wonder if there are any similarities with, say, the Basques. Are the Kurds, first of all, a nation? They're not a nation state, but they're a nation. They've been promised a nation state as such, and the powers have failed to deliver that. So the Kurdish people, they like to say, and I think there's a lot of truth in it, that they're the biggest nation without a state. And on multiple occasions, they've been promised things that were not fulfilled. But as a political reality, as an imagined community, certainly the Kurdish national, pan-national imaginary is quite strong. What are the echoes with the Iberian Peninsula? Spain is, in some respects, one of the oldest states in the world. It depends on how we define state, but if we go with the kind of modern state ideology associated with, let's say, Max Weber's theory of the state, it's one of the older bases, and it was one of the great empires, of course. Most of the Basques have been part of the Spanish political space for over 500 years. But nonetheless, in the Basque country, there is percolates in the 19th century in particular and into the early 20th century, a sense of distinct national consciousness. And some people think of the Basques as, in some respects, an indigenous people. If we think about the language of the Basque language is really interesting because it is not a a Latin language. So people sometimes will talk about the Basques as uh, one of Europe's last indigenous people. I think that the dynamics of Basque nationalism are very much associated with the crisis of the Spanish empire come nation state at the end of the 19th century. It emerges at the similar time as the Catalan nationalism emerges. Both the Basque and the Catalan cases, there are spaces in Spain that historically are relatively industrialized and comparatively overdeveloped. Whereas the Kurds in Turkey, for example, the Kurdish region in Turkey is in some respects deliberately underdeveloped in the course of the 20th century. So when we think about the kind of racism towards the Kurds, especially in Turkey, but also in the Arab national regimes, it's very much a national chauvinism in which the Kurds are poor peasants. Whereas the Catalans and the Basques and the kind of nationalist conflicts that happen there are always against this backdrop of a declining imperial come nation state with these spaces of industrial development. You're listening to Naked Reflections with me, Ed Kessler, and my guests this week are Dr. Jeff Miley and Chris Cooper Davis. And we're discussing nationalism. Like it or not, national prestige is often linked with scientific endeavor. Here's Professor Molly John of the University of Wisconsin at Madison, speaking at the Conference of the American Association for the Advancement of Science. Well, our, the science community has clearly defended its ability to, um, to make decisions about funding um, grant proposals in particular, defending the objectivity and integrity of that process ferociously, and it's critically important. And we are seeing right now a tendency in our legislative branch to scrutinize that those processes and intervene. And I think there's a tremendous danger there. And um, the transparency that science creates is, is very, very important, especially in a democratic society. Molly makes an important point here, but let's take a step back and just explore the difference between a nation and a state. I think that for, for nations and nationalism to have come into existence, you obviously have to have had the state. And I think all kind of theorists of nationalism kind of agree on this. But obviously, there were very powerful states and very well-developed states before there were nations and nationalism. And there have been many nationalisms and nations without states. And obviously, the, the Catalan and Kurdish examples are pretty important there. What is quite interesting is the power of the state, no matter how seemingly artificial or invented it is to create a sense of identity and the speed with which this can happen in in pretty much any context. 
going back to the Middle East, it's amazing how we talk about states such as Iraq and Syria, and they're less than 100 years old. And yet really, you know, despite all of the violence and the issues that we see in these parts of the world, concept of these states and their legitimacy isn't really being questioned. We can say the same about Palestine as well. I mean, this was a state that really only had a, an existence of, of, say, less than 30 years. And yet now it's probably one of the most virulent nationalisms without a state in the world. In the European cases, the European nation state really emerges powerfully towards the end of the 19th century and into the 20th century linked to the mobilization for total war and also the education of masses of people into national labor markets. So there's a nationalizing project associated with the modern state that really percolates it towards the end of the 19th and into the 20th century. And it is really important to know that though the state precedes the modern nation form, it is very much intimately tied into the modern nation form. So even those nations without states, they tend to want to have a nation state. The nation state is the dominant currency of political legitimation. And with respect to the importance of the state and the way in which the state takes hold and generates these national imaginings, we can look towards the states of the so-called Middle East, but we can also look to, for example, the African continent. Certainly with respect to the relationship between these state boundaries, again, drawn up by imperial powers and ethno, linguistic, religious, different kinds of communal forms of being. To the extent that we can think of a Tanzanian nation, it's very much a very recent product of the last 60 years or so. And nonetheless, there are few challenges to the basic borders of the Tanzanian nation state. There are challenges to borders in the African context, but what is very interesting is the extent to which, for example, the, the anti-colonial leaders in the African context all saw national independence as being a step towards African unity. And yet the difficulties that once they got national sovereignty and giving up national sovereignty to create a pan-national, pan-African kind of union have been immense. One of the areas that you've both touched on, but we haven't explored in any detail, is the role of religion as far as nationalism is concerned. And in recent years, the growth of religious nationalism in the Middle East, in North America, and in many parts of the world, and one thinks in the Southeast Asia as well, has grown dramatically and is playing a role. And yet, of course, religion is as old as humanity, if not older. So why is religious nationalism growing? And you can see it in, as I say, in Israel with Jewish religious nationalism. You see it with radical jihadi nationalism. And you see it also in Christianity with Serb nationalism, for example. What's going on here? Going back to some, some of the theory of nationalism, it's often seen as something that's replaced religion, certainly in Western Europe. Religion has become you know, less significant within the national context. But I think that, you know, in reality, it's probably been more of a transformation in the role of religion than a diminishment necessarily. That religion has gone in Western Europe from a kind of instrument of power in the pre-modern world, sustained by like a, a kind of clerical religious hierarchy with exclusive access to, to truth, that uh, also at the same time is legitimizing the pre-modern states and monarchs. And now it's become sort of one of several cultural markers which can constitute the essence of nationalism. Yeah, India is a wonderful example of what you just said, isn't it, Chris? Because it claims to be a secular state, it's 80% Hindu, and yet the Hindu vata, the growth of Hindu religious nationalism, is occurring in a very obvious and painful way to those groups, particularly Muslims and Christians, who are minorities there. 
to go back, I think that Chris makes a really good point that a lot of the literature on nationalism talks about this transition from a dynastic mode of legitimation, which was linked into religious community, uh, to the national mode of legitimation. And if we th if we trace that back, there was a, a, one of the original moments of state sovereignty was linked to this idea that the ruler of the different European emergent states, there would be some sort of relationship between the, the faith that was dominant. So obviously the, the, the history of England associated with the Protestant Reformation in that respect. So there is a deep history of the relationship between state sovereignty and religious confession in the European uh, case. But obviously as well, there is a tension between religious modes of community and national ways of understanding. Because if we take, uh, for example, the Muslim uh, community of believers or the Christian community of faith, these are uh, communities that are, are transnational in scope and potentially even in, in principle, potentially even universal in scope. Uh, whereas the nation is imagined as, as inherently limited. We do see, for example, with the emergence of some of these jihadi groups that we see ISIS, for example, very much challenges the boundaries of the nation state. There's a really interesting documentary by Vice that was in on the ground around 2014 when ISIS had made its great surge and they caught on film the celebration where they were dancing on the line between Iraq and Syria showing that this boundary no longer has any significance for us. So Sykes-Picot has been abolished by the emergence of this community, which uh, is the community of believers. Nonetheless, when ISIS became a territorial power, it began operating very much kind of like an insurgent state, so to speak. So even though religious ideologies are very much in tension with the idea of the nation state or can be very much in tension with the nation state, they also, even though they are in principle universal, they tend to be linked to particular groups. They can look very much like a, a basis for ethnicity. So we see, for example, in uh, Northern Ireland, closer to home, so to speak, the ethnic marker, so to speak, that is distinguishing the two groups is religion. There's not really a theological differences that are at stake, but nonetheless, it's a religious marker that is at the same time kind of an ethno-national marker. So it's a complicated uh, question. You ask about the United States. The United States is a really fascinating uh, case in which there certainly is a very strong kind of religious minority, which takes a kind of evangelical form of fundamentalist Christianity, which plays and intersects with a, a dominant kind of white supremacist ideologies that becomes very important part of the political formula by which right wing of the Republican Party manages to mobilize popular support and win elections by getting people to identify with their religious and racial uh, identities over their class identities, for example. So it's, again, a very complicated question, but it's at the core of so many political conflicts uh, around the world, this strange tension interlinking between religious and national identity. It's interesting how religion does and does not cross over the boundaries. So, for example, I'm thinking of Russia, where Putin sees himself as the defender of the church, that is the Russian Orthodox Church. So there's a sense of to be Russian means you have to be Russian Orthodox. So what about those Catholics or Muslims or Jews who are Russian, you know, not deemed to have the same status? Whereas in the Middle East, it seems, and perhaps, Chris, you can comment on this. In the Middle East, it seems that the religion, it goes beyond the state, as Jeff was saying about ISIS. But to be a Muslim or to be a Shia doesn't necessarily mean you have to be Iraqi. You could be Iranian as well. You know, it seems to be less national identity with that branch of Islam. Or, or, or am I getting that wrong? I think the thing about the Middle East that's quite interesting is how most of the states in the Arab world, I would say, were premised on a kind of commitment to ecumenicalism and pluralism. This is Iraq, Syria, Lebanon, 
And nowadays, these states obviously have a reputation for, you know, religious and sectarian conflict, whereas places like Turkey, for example, are sort of lauded for being an example of a secular state emerging from this fractious region. Whereas in reality, Turkey is probably the only state in the region that didn't even attempt the kind of pluralistic model that the other states in some ways almost successfully did implement for, for quite a lot of their history. You know, it was Turkey that systematically killed or expelled or transferred pretty much all of its Christian population, and most of the Jews have left or got dual citizenship. Interestingly, the sort of criteria to become Turkish wasn't so much being ethnically Turkish, it was more just being Muslim. So lots of the Arab population of, say, eastern Turkey have been completely Turkified. They wouldn't speak any Arabic now, but they weren't ethnically Turkish before the foundation of the state. So Anatolia has become probably one of the most religiously and ethnically homogenous, bar the Kurds, obviously, religiously and ethnically homogenous spaces in the Middle East because of a process of state formation that was very, very violent and very, very exclusionary. I think that's really insightful. I mean, we have to keep in mind the genocide of the Armenians, which is to this day a taboo in uh, Turkey. You're not allowed to recognize it as such. The one point that I would stress, the one way in which Arab nationalist regimes look like the Turkish state has to do with the nationalist insistence on not recognizing the Kurdish identity. In that respect, I think they resemble one another. But I think your points about the rosy, sanguine picture that is often painted about the Turkish Republic in the Western countries in contrast to the Arab countries, I think is just not historically accurate. Yeah, I mean, I would never say that it was successfully implemented. I mean, in Iraq, for example, you had a genocide against the Assyrians in the 30s, the Kurds pretty much all the time. The Jews were obviously forcefully expelled in the 40s. You know, it was always a theory over a practice. Some of the architects of the state, and if you sort of read their writings, you know, they did envision something that was perhaps a little more pluralistic and inclusive than we would now give them credit for. Well, that's all from Naked Reflections this week. Thanks to my guests, Jeff Miley and Chris Cooper Davis. And thanks to you two for listening. If you'd like to get in touch with any comments or reflections of your own, you can email nakedreflections at wolf.cam.ac.uk. Let us know what subjects you'd like to hear more about and how you'd like us to cover them. We'd love to hear from you. In the meantime, you can find more episodes of Naked Reflections and subscribe to the Naked Reflections podcast wherever you access your podcast or at nakedscientists.com slash reflections. Do join us next time. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.